We find ourselves today in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the whole chapter from verse 1 down to verse 13. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. Beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, our heavenly Father, as we have opened your word, we ask now that you would answer the prayers which we have just sung. Show us Christ. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Help us by your spirit to behold that very glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's perhaps no more famous name from the Old Testament than King David, and rightly so. God chose this little shepherd boy amongst the sons of Jesse to be the prince over his people, anointing him as Israel's king. And when we read of David's life and reign, we, we see him to be a king of such valor and strength, used by God to vanquish all the enemies of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote some of the richest psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he led the nation of Israel in the worship of the one true God. And so King David was truly the greatest king 
of the Old Testament that ever graced the throne of Israel. Because David reigned over God's people in power and faith and in righteousness. But if that's not enough, here we are given a window into the vastness of David's character. Not only was he powerful and mighty and righteous as king, but on top of all of that, here we see that David was a tender-hearted king, full of mercy and kindness. And it's beautifully displayed in how David shows exceeding kindness to this poor, crippled fellow named Mephibosheth. Now, as we have just read this account, it's right that we behold something of David's glory, as it were. Because here, as we read it, we can't help but observe just what set of honorable and admirable characteristics that David demonstrates. I mean, if only our society had leaders and governors like David who actually used their positions of power and fame to serve the people in true righteousness and fear of God and genuine kindness and compassion, not the fake compassion that's all talk and empty ideology. And so to be sure, as we behold something of David, we see that he was a glorious king, humanly speaking. There is a godly majesty to behold in David, the man. But for as great as David was, as glorious of a king he was, he is but a reflection of the glory of the king of kings, namely the Lord Jesus, and his immeasurable kindness and compassion towards sinners like us. You see, before we dive into this passage, it's important that we first get our minds situated with the big theological picture of the life of David and what God intended to reveal through him. In order to see the glory of Christ here in this passage, we have to first understand something about this concept called types in the Bible or typology, if you want to put it in a fancy way. Now, what do I mean by type, T-Y-P-E? Well, what is a type? Well, strictly speaking, The word type means a pattern or a mold or a template, okay? It's a certain sketch or outline of something. Now, in using this word, it may seem a little strange uh, at first, but if you think about it, we actually use this word quite often in our everyday conversation. For instance, when you plan to Uh, meet someone for lunch, you probably find yourself asking or being asked, hey, where should we go? What type of food do you like? And if you're asked that question, the answer you give is something like a sketch or a general pattern of this food that you have in your mind, this food to your taste and liking. Maybe you'll say something like, well, I like Mexican food or I like Asian food, but nothing too spicy. And so whether you've realized it or not, what you've done is given your friend a certain outline or template, a list of characteristics that that describe this ideal food that you're thinking of. You've utilized typology in your communication. To put it another way, a type is like a silhouette or, or a shadow 
that, that get you thinking and, and wondering about who or what is that actual thing that the shadow is reflecting and pointing to. And so because a type is a reflection of something, it, it triggers our curiosity as to who or what that actual thing is. It, it, it triggers our anticipation for that ideal thing. If I can give another example, uh, I know we have many young adults here uh, who have recently graduated from college in the last few years. We have recent college grads. And now listen, I was once a college student too, and I know very, very well what is the number one topic of conversation amongst young men and young women during their college years. It's not about wondering about their future career, It's not discussing the latest television series or uh, sports news. But the number one topic of discussion between young, passionate college students begins with this question. Who is your ideal type? What type of guy, what type of girl are you into? I know how it is. I hear those chuckles. I'll take that as an amen. Um, Many late nights spent talking with your roommates into the wee hours, describing for the ladies your ideal Boaz. Uh, For the guys, your ideal Proverbs 31 woman, which, by the way, Proverbs 31 was probably written in description of Ruth. And so there you go. You got the ladies thinking about their Boaz. You got the gentlemen thinking about the Ruth. Uh, But but again, you, you see in this, in, in this kind of conversation, it's, it's filled with descriptions of features and characteristics and aspects of this one mystery ideal person that you're earnestly waiting for and you're praying day and night for the Lord to hasten the day of his or her revealing. And so in the same way, a type in the Bible is a certain object or person or event in the Old Testament which God was using not only as a foreshadow or a preview that points to the ultimate actual ideal thing, but also to build up the anticipation and expectation of a day when that ideal one would be revealed, namely in Jesus, the Messiah. And so that's what a type is, okay? To put it succinctly, it's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality, something that is fully revealed in the New Testament in the person and work. Of Jesus Christ. Now, this word and concept of type, this language, isn't something that people just made up. We actually see this word explicitly used in the Bible in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, as Paul makes that connection between Adam and Jesus. Paul says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, talking about Jesus. There was something about Adam in his unique role as the first man that was a reflection, or as I like to call it, you've heard me say it a lot, a preflection of Jesus's role. Because as Paul explains in the rest of Romans chapter 5, that just as Adam was the head of the human race, and we were all born under and into Adam's race, and we inherited Adam's sin, so Jesus came to begin a new humanity in himself so that we might inherit his righteousness. See, Adam, as the first man, he he sinned and he led his entire human progeny into eternal death. But Jesus, the greater Adam, 
the second Adam, the better Adam, the ultimate Adam, he accomplished perfect righteousness and he leads everyone who is born again by faith into his new humanity, under his headship. He leads them into eternal life. Now, I don't have time to get into all the details of Adam as a type of Christ. Uh, That's a whole different subject in and of itself. But the point is that, as you can see, types are a biblical concept. However, you can't just assume that everything and everyone in the Old Testament is a type of Christ. There has to be some indication somewhere in the Bible that indeed this is God's intent. Now, it doesn't have to be so explicit, contrary to what some uh, say. Uh, Some people assert that no it needs to be spelled out i don't really think so because it must be there at least by implication or allusion so that we could have some scriptural grounds to connect the dots and so then the important question for us this morning is this where do we see in the bible that david serves the same function how do we know that david was meant to be a type of Christ, pointing to him. Well, turn your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 3. The minor prophet, Hosea. And uh, as you turn there, just keep this date in mind that David's reign, that the time of David when he was king was around 1000 BC. Okay, that's a little simplified. Technically, it was about 1011 to 971 BC, but you know, just for all practical purposes, it's really easy to remember 1000 BC, okay, 3000 years ago was when David reigned as king. Now here in Hosea chapter three, uh, God speaks through his prophet Hosea and he foretells of a future event. And it says in Hosea chapter three, verse four, God says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods and afterward after those many days the children of israel shall return and seek the lord their god and david their king and they shall come in fear to the lord and to his goodness in the latter days so again here god speaks of a time in the future from their vantage point when his people will be ruled by david their king now again i told you that david's reign was 1000 bc when was hosea written it was written around, just roughly, 750 B.C. That's 250 years after David was already long dead. How is that possible? When David's been in the grave for the last few hundred years. Now before we answer that, let me, let's go to one last passage. Uh, turn a little bit forward, or uh, back rather, uh, to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter uh, 34. Again, here, through the prophet Ezekiel, God speaks of a future reality. In Ezekiel chapter 34, this time through this prophet Ezekiel, and God says in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, he says this, And I will set up over them, sometime in the future, one shepherd. Who is this shepherd? My servant, David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their Shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. Now, when was Ezekiel 34 written? Probably around 570 BC. That's about 400 years after 
David. This is during the exile in Babylon. And yet God still speaks of a time, a future time, when his people will have a good shepherd, his servant, David. Now what do we make of this? Well, either God was talking about literal David, the son of Jesse, who was in the tomb, and at some point in the future, a zombie version of David will sit on the throne again and shepherd the people, which would be kind of terrifying. Or... God was talking about the greater David, the ultimate David, the ideal David, of whom the David of 2 Samuel was only a shadow and mere reflection. Because this ultimate David, the son of David, is the Christ The anointed one. He is the one whom David saw in a vision and called Lord in Psalm 110. He is David's son, yet David's Lord. And so what this means is that all these different aspects of David's life, of David's character, of David's experiences, they were all pointing to Jesus. He was not reenacting, but pre-enacting the life and ministry and character of Christ. This is why God said of David, I'm looking for a man after my own heart, in that there would be something about this man David through whom God would reveal a glimpse of his own heart, what God is like, his holy character. And so, coming back to the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, what then do we observe of David's kindness to Mephibosheth? That reflects the glory of God. What was so marvelous about this kindness that it serves as a pointer to the kindness of God himself? Was the fact that this kindness from David to Mephibosheth was utterly unexpected and utterly undeserved. You see, we have to understand who Mephibosheth was. Because 2 Samuel chapter 9, it opens up well after David rose to the throne and conquered all his enemies, as chapter 8 tells us. And chapter 9 begins with David saying in verse 1, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Is there any of Saul's descendants still remaining? Now, reading up to that point, one would expect that the reason David asked this was so that he might exterminate every last remaining descendant of Saul. And if David had done that, it would be understandable. Because remember, the entire house of Saul, especially Saul himself, they had done everything in their power to kill David. Saul was a wicked man. Remember, he chased David for years out of envy, trying to kill him. He was like a serial killer. And David had to flee from his home, leave his family, leave his wife, and live the life of a fugitive, even though God had anointed him as king, as a rightful king, to take the place of Saul. And even after Saul died, and David finally returned home, which is the beginning of 2 Samuel, Saul's household, his remaining followers, were still determined to rebel against David's kingship. And so 2 Samuel 3 verse 1 tells us that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And all this whole war was instigated by Saul's camp. And so you would think that at this point, David would take the opportunity to finally destroy 
every last member of Saul's household because they were violent rebels against his God-appointed reign. Now, again, it wouldn't be too unreasonable. It'd practically be a matter of preemptive self-defense. It was the king's prerogative to defend his rightful throne. But that's not what David was interested in. Instead, he asks, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? See, Jonathan was the son of King Saul who loved David like his own brother and vice versa. And before Jonathan died, back in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, David had made a covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan, He, he had made an oath, a promise. And David promised to not cut off the household of Jonathan. And years later, David remembered that promise. Even though Jonathan was dead, he never forgot the oath that he swore to Jonathan. And so after all that David had gone through, after all that he had to endure from the house of Saul, here David, now in the position of absolute power as a monarch, He uses his authority to seek to show kindness and mercy to the household of Saul for the sake of his son, Jonathan. And so in verse 2, we find that there was a servant of Saul's house named Ziba. And when David called him to ask if there was any remnant from Saul's household, that's when Ziba says to David in verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan and he is crippled in his feet. And his name, as verse 6 tells us, was Mephibosheth. Now, we're actually introduced to Mephibosheth back in chapter 4, verse 4. And there we see that when Mephibosheth was five years old, he had a tragic accident where he fell onto his feet and became lame. He had damaged his feet. And hence, Ziba the servant tells David that the son of Jonathan is crippled in his feet. Now, why is this detail important? Well, it tells us that Mephibosheth really had nothing to offer to David. That the kindness that David would show to Mephibosheth could not be on the basis of any good or any usefulness on the part of Mephibosheth. He couldn't serve the king in any, any beneficial way. And in the eyes of ancient Israel, a society that was so dependent on manual labor and military combat, Mephibosheth would have been viewed as utterly useless due to his physical condition. And that's probably why verse 4 tells us that he lived in a place called Lodabar, which was on the other side of the Jordan River, to the east, far away from the central location of Jerusalem, where the Ark of God was situated, where the worship of God was happening by way of sacrifice. Because the lame, the blind, and anyone with physical defects were not allowed to draw near to offer sacrificial worship because, as Leviticus 21 verse 17 tells us, they were viewed as ceremonially unclean. That's not because God was trying to be discriminatory, but he was teaching an object lesson, a symbolic lesson by that regarding the glory of his presence. Namely, that he is so pure and holy and good that anything that remotely resembles death and dysfunction and the vestige of this fallen world cannot be in his presence because he has nothing to do with sin and death and disease and sorrow. It's actually a message of hope. 
to remind his people how in the presence of God alone there is the perfection of goodness and peace, the very fountain of life. It's really the hope of heaven symbolized. But in any case, this was Mephibosheth. Strictly speaking, he was an enemy of the house of David by natural association with Saul, his grandfather. And he was unclean, he was unfit, unworthy, and useless to the king. But when David hears that there was yet remaining this crippled man, the grandson of Saul, David calls for him to be brought to Jerusalem before his kingly presence. And so verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David called out to him, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now I imagine that at this point, he must have been filled with fear and dread, trembling before David's royal presence. Perhaps he was expecting condemnation, the news that Mephibosheth would be imprisoned for the rest of his days because of who he was, Saul's grandson. And maybe Mephibosheth was just hoping inside, all I ask is just to be pardoned. Just have mercy on me. You could just leave me alone. You don't have to do anything for me. Just don't punish me. Please just withhold your judgment from me. But what does David say to Mephibosheth? He says in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, all of your inheritance, and you shall Eat at my table always. This is extraordinary kindness. Because not only was Mephibosheth's life spared, but he was blessed beyond imagination. He was enriched, made filthy rich, and exalted to the highest place of sitting at the table of the king to dine with him in his presence. I mean, can you believe that? Mephibosheth couldn't believe it. When he heard David's words, he was speechless. And the only thing he could say was verse 8, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This cursed animal that I am. This filthy, unworthy beast before your excellency. But David reaffirms his declaration as he says to the servant Ziba in verse 9, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you, Ziba, and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. You will keep serving him. You will bring him the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But for Mephibosheth, for him, your master's grandson, he shall always eat at my table. And I love this description in verse 11. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. David took him in as his very own. Mephibosheth enjoyed the privileges of not just merely being the king's servant, but the king's own son. And as the story ends in verse 13, Says so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, no longer in Lodabar, but continually in the presence of the king, for he ate always at the king's 
table. What amazing kindness and grace on the part of David. But don't you see here, as we've talked about all of this, all of these hints and winks scattered throughout this passage that are meant to be glimmers of the reflection of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ, our King. I mean, look at how David even talks in verse 7. He says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear. He sounds so much like Jesus. Jesus is always saying in the Gospels, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Peace I bring to you. See, if there's anything excellent and praiseworthy we see in David's kindness to Mephibosheth, it is only because it is but a shadow of the infinite excellencies of Christ and His loving kindness toward us. Because look, Mephibosheth was born into hostility against David. He was by nature an enemy of the king, being a child of Saul. And in the same way, Ephesians 2 foretells us that we were by nature children of wrath. By sinful nature, we are enemies of God, hostile to Him, as Romans 8, 7 says. And we see here how much emphasis there is put on the fact that Mephibosheth was lame and crippled. Even as this passage concludes, the very final words, just to remind us one last time, was that the son of Saul was unclean, weak, and powerless. That he was lame in both his feet. But in the same way, Romans 5, 6 tells us that while we were weak and powerless, while we were crippled in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly for His own enemies, to reconcile us to God. Christ died not for His friends, but He died for His enemies, for sinners. You see, all of this is the grace of God revealed in pictorial form through David, but in full measure and manifestation through Jesus Christ. In fact, notice how this passage is very focused on this word, kindness. We see it repeated three times in verse 1, and then in verse 3, and then in verse 7. And this is a very important word, because it's the Old Testament word for steadfast love, faithfulness, and really grace from God. Even as David says in verse 3, this is the kindness of God that I want to show this descendant of Saul. And we see this word most often throughout the Psalms, for instance, you, you know the verse, give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His steadfast love or His loving kindness endures forever. Now, it's a very difficult word to translate into English one-to-one because it's a very rich and nuanced word, which is why depending on what translation you're using, you'll see something like steadfast love or loving kindness or mercy. And they're all good. They all capture different shades and nuances of this word. It was because this word, this, this kindness, is not just any act of kindness. Okay, It's not just a general kindness of being courteous. But at the heart of this word, steadfast love, loving kindness, kindness, whatever you want to call it, it is a covenant kindness. By that I mean, it is an unswerving commitment to do good to someone, to deal with someone kindly and favorably, as if that person were your closest friend or dearest loved one, not on the basis of that person, 
but on the basis of an oath you swore to deal kindly with that person. And you will follow through on this oath, this pledge, no matter what. Even if that person is horrible. Even if that person is your enemy. I mean, the perfect example is the whole Old Testament of God Despite dealing with his wayward people, Israel, constantly rebelling against them, never upholding their end of the covenant. But God refusing to forsake Israel. Why? Because he had made a covenant to Abraham. And hence, this translation of steadfast love, it's this unchanging faithfulness, unchanging commitment to that promise. Or sometimes you can even translate it as covenant loyalty. You made a pledge and you will keep to it until the end. And this is why David keeps mentioning his covenant with Jonathan when expressing his intent to show kindness to Mephibosheth. He's not saying, oh, Mephibosheth, I'll, I'll, I'll show you kindness because you're not so bad a guy. I like you. That's not what he says. He's not even, he doesn't even say, I will show you kindness, Mephibosheth, because I'm a really cool guy. Well, he says, no, 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 no. I will do it. For Jonathan's sake. It's because I made a covenant with Jonathan. And my promise to Jonathan is the basis of me dealing so kindly and favorably with you, Mephibosheth. Even if you are technically my enemy. See, in a sense, this covenant had nothing to do with Mephibosheth. He wasn't involved in making this covenant. David made this pledge before Mephibosheth was even born. But do you see how this is but a reflection of God's infinite covenant grace? David's kindness and grace to Mephibosheth was on the basis of his covenant with Jonathan. But God's kindness and grace to us was on the basis of his covenant with himself. As Hebrews 6.13 says, that when God made a promise to Abraham, which was the gospel in nascent form, since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he said, by myself I have sworn, I will surely bless you. As I live. You know why God says that? Because that is a promise he cannot break. Because God lives forevermore. He is the eternal God. As I live, I make this promise and I will keep it to the end. And this is what's so amazing about the grace of God. It's one thing for God to show kindness and favor and blessing to righteous, holy people who are pleasing to Him. But it's another thing for Him to do that toward unrighteous, unclean sinners like us. And on what basis does God do this inexplicable thing? It's on the basis of himself. Simply because he is gracious. He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. He will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. He is who he is. I am who I am. And that's what makes grace so amazing. As Titus 3 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. 
You see, the grace of God is the most glorious circular reality of God being merciful because He is merciful. It's Him lavishing grace because He is the God of lavish grace. And just as David not only spared Mephibosheth, but bestowed on him the richest of his blessings, exalting him to the status of his own son, so in Christ, God not only spares us of judgment, but he blesses us with the immeasurable riches of his infinite love and delight. You see, the wonder of the gospel is not only that God declares sinners no longer guilty. But on top of all of that, he declares sinners righteous, precious, beloved in his sight, to the point of adopting them as his own children, even worthless and filthy dogs that we are in our sin. But such is the marvel of God's grace that he exalts wretched sinners even to the point of giving them a seat at his own table to be in never-ending fellowship with him, dining with him forever, we as his own children. And while David gave such blessing to Mephibosheth at no real cost to himself, Jesus gives this blessing to us at the cost of his very own self. His body broken for us. His blood spilled for us. That by His death on the cross, we might receive the forgiveness of sins and enjoy fellowship with God forever. And that we might have the certainty and the assurance of His love toward us because all of this is God's grace on the basis of Himself. It is not predicated even on our present performance as Christians, but that even on our worst days as believers, it is just the same as on the best days as believers, that God has made a covenant within Himself in eternity, setting His love upon sinners who would never choose Him, but He chose us before the foundation of the world. I mean, isn't this... The glory of the gospel. Fellowship with God forever. And don't we see such a beautiful picture of this fellowship in in Mephibosheth, who, who once, who had previously lived on the other side of the Jordan River, what was generally viewed as the wilderness, fit for the unclean, but he was called out by the king to come and enter the city gates that he might dwell with him as a member of his household for the rest of his days. And so Jesus says in the same way in Revelation twenty two fourteen, Blessed are those who wash their robes, those who are cleansed by His blood, so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life forever, and that they may enter the city by the gates. The holy city, the kingdom of God, which is His household. What an amazing gospel. If you're here this morning and you have not tasted the kindness of King Jesus, look at Him. Behold His glory through the instrumentality of David. And come to Jesus by faith. He invites sinners like you and me. 
And he welcomes you in the abundance of his grace. Look, if there's anything that you see here in David that is so winsome, so praiseworthy, so trustworthy, Jesus is infinitely more. Just as Mephibosheth had absolutely nothing to offer David, but David gave him everything. So you, non-Christians, you have nothing to offer God, but God has given all of himself, the best of himself, to sinners by sending his own son to pay for the penalty of sin. Do not refuse his gracious invitation. His kindness is meant to lead you toward repentance and faith and eternal life with him. And so confess your sin and entrust yourself into the wonders of Jesus' grace. And again, if you think that David is kind and merciful, Jesus Christ is infinitely more. And church, as we, as we marvel and rejoice in this story, do you see what all of this also shows us about the blessing of our lives in Christ? Well, what is the purpose and meaning of our present lives as believers? I mean, again, look at Mephibosheth and the, the new life that he enjoyed as a result of David's kindness and, and, and grace. He, he dined with the king. He delighted in the king's presence, enjoying fellowship and communion with him. This is what we were saved for, you see. This is what the Christian life is about. Salvation is not just about getting out of hell, but it is about being brought into the presence of God to be adopted as his child so that we might live to enjoy His presence and love for the rest of our days, to know Him, to speak with Him, and to hear, with, hear Him speak to us through His Word, to sit with Him, to, to fellowship with Him. This is the greatest blessing. Now, can you imagine if all Mephibosheth wanted was just to be spared? To just get out of hell, as it were. Can you imagine, after David gave so rich and gracious an offer in himself, and showing Mephibosheth exceeding kindness for the sake of Jonathan, and inviting him even to sit with him each day at the king's table. Can you imagine if Mephibosheth had said, Well, thank you, king but I'm really not interested in spending time with you. All I was looking for was just to avoid punishment. And I'm really glad that I got what I wanted from you. And so if you'll excuse me, let me head back east and head back home. And let me go back to living my own life. You you don't have to bother me. That is unthinkable blasphemy and irreverence. To do so is to repudiate the king, to spit on his face, and to reject his grace and his kindness in unbelief. No matter how much you want to be spared from judgment. And so you see, by analogy, the Christian life is about communion with Christ, fellowship with him, growing to know him and enjoy him more and more experiencing the blessing of sitting at his table, dining with him in the presence of his grace. And that's what Mephibosheth understood. 
His response to the amazing grace of His King was not just to take the things from the King that He gave, but it was ultimately to rejoice in the person of the King for all of His days. Now let me close with this. Turn to chapter 19 in 2 Samuel. This is some years later. And uh, I suppose, long story short, after David had to flee and live as a fugitive again, because this time it was because Absalom, his son, conspired against his father and overthrew him. And so David's own confidence, confidants had turned against him and uh, they pursued him with the sword. So David had to flee for his life again. And long story short, fast forward to chapter 18, Absalom is eventually killed in battle and David returns to Jerusalem. He returns to his throne in chapter 19. And upon David's return, he had to settle a lot of matters because a lot of people had betrayed David, including Ziba the servant, who had not only joined the coup, but he had earlier lied to David, accusing, falsely accusing Mephibosheth of betrayal when he never did. Uh, to the contrary, Mephibosheth was actually mourning the entire time that David was gone, as you can see in verse 24 of chapter 19. But in any case, upon David's return back to the throne, as he dealt with various matters, and now here he turns his attention to deal with Ziba and Mephibosheth, well, David was at a crossroads. Because the question was, do I believe Ziba? Uh, and believe that Mephibosheth had betrayed me, and so uh, as a consequence, I hand over to Ziba all of Mephibosheth's possessions? Or do I believe Mephibosheth and give Ziba nothing because he was a liar and a traitor? Well, David didn't know what to believe nor whom to believe. And so perhaps as a way of testing them, David said to both of them in verse 29 of chapter 19, okay, why don't you guys divide it up 50-50? But look at how Mephibosheth responded in verse 30. It says, And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all. Let Ziba take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. He was saying to David, O king, I don't care for the possessions. Ziba can have it. I'm just so happy that you're back. I'm overjoyed to be in your presence once again. I am so happy to look upon your face. This, my friends, is someone who never forgot the kindness of his king. And as a result, he loved his king and lived to honor him unto the very end. And may we all be like Mephibosheth, whose life was so changed that day by the king's amazing grace that all he ever wanted in life from that point on was just to be near him and to be with him. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for the life of David through whom we see pictures and illustrations and pointers to the glory of our Lord, the King Jesus. We thank you that he is 
the perfection of all that is good and merciful and compassionate and righteous and powerful and gracious. Because He is God the Son. We are so glad to worship Him as our King. And we ask that you would help us to delight in Him just as Mephibosheth did in his King. We thank you for the amazing grace that you have shown us in Christ. And we thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which we literally get a taste of it in the bread and the cup, in this ordinary bread and cup that you have set apart to remind us of the grace that is shown in Christ as he gave himself to us and that we by faith can come, though unclean we are, to dine at the table of the king. Oh Lord, would you help us to receive it by faith that we might rejoice in the presence of the king in whose name we pray, amen.